if you're worried that you don't know the path, like how do you get to the next step? You know, how do you make that leap? Don't worry. You will create it for yourself. listeners, please welcome Arzu Riahi. She is program director of Tech Women at the Institute of International Education. And this interview is part of our Women in Tech series. This is the first in a series of monthly podcasts where women in diplomacy and women in foreign policy interview women working at the intersection of foreign policy and technology to show how technology is changing the face of diplomacy in 2016. Aradzu, can you please give us a brief introduction to what you do, your job, your role, and your work? Sure, thank you for having me. Basically, I am, like you said, the director of a program called Tech Women, which is going into its sixth year. It's an initiative of the U.S. State Department, and I work for an organization called the Institute of International Education, and we have the great privilege of administering this program. And what the program is really all about is it is a um, program through the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Exchange, and um What we try and do is bring emerging leaders, women, who have a technical background in science, tech, engineering, math, and bring them to Silicon Valley, which, as you know, and many of your listeners know, is really this hub of um, innovation and risk-taking, and give them an opportunity to see firsthand what um, some of the leading companies out here and the most innovative companies are doing. So for five weeks, these women, we have about 90 to 100 women from 21 different countries um, throughout the Middle East, North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, and South and Central Asia. They come to Silicon Valley, Valley and they have a an opportunity to really be in the company and work on a project with a mentor. Um, And the real objective is for these women to go back home and um, really meet their their own potential, Um, whether that's uh, in their family, in their careers, it's launching their own startups, it's um, starting their own community centers or you know, initiatives, uh, whatever that may be, we hope that this program gives them a voice and a seat at the table. Certainly very impactful work. So for you, on the ground level, what does a typical day at work look like for you? Was there any experience that you had that let you know that this job was a good fit for you? To be honest, there's no real typical day. Um, Every day is so different, and most of that is because the program is on a cycle where the women come every fall, and really leading up to that, um, we're in different parts of the program cycle and the design, so that it's it's actually we could be traveling one day um, in one of our on one of our delegation trips to a program country, we could um, be hosting the women here, we could be preparing for them. Um, or we could just be working on our relationships here with our mentors, our host companies, um, doing logistics, whatever it may be to kind of be ready to, to uh, welcome the next group. I think the job is interesting. And, um, 
you know, so much. I've been doing this work now for about 10 years, a little over 10 years. And when I started at IIE, I was working on the Fulbright program, which many of you may have heard of. Um, and it was very different. I was working on outreach programs and traveling to different college campuses and talking about the work that we were doing. And you can see how how different that is from my day-to-day now, despite working still on the State Department program and working at the same company. So I would say that um, in terms of just kind of know, like seeing how this is the right fit, it's um, I've had the great privilege of working for an organization that's allowed for me to talk about my own interests and passions and then position me um, on a program where I can work with women globally to do the work that I I love. What is the biggest challenge that you encounter in your work? There's a lot of challenges, I think, as you can imagine working with, well, first of all, we have over 2,300 applications um, on any given year. And so just getting that down to the top 90 or 100, depending on the year, um, it's it's a huge task. And Um, We take the selection process quite seriously. We do final interviews um, just to make sure we get the right people because ultimately that's where the impact is. Uh, So I think there's a lot of unknown um, in in that and in who, and then there's a lot of unknown in the program. Um, This is a State Department program. Um, The different administrations will uh, look at the program differently. We're in in an election year, as you all know. So the longevity of the program um, is something that we think about a lot. Um, I would also say that there's just so many relationships, right? So, you know, you have your the participants each year. They become alumni. In some countries, we have six years of alumni. In others, we only have one. Um, and so, you know, how, how do you cultivate those relationships and continue to support each group which who are at different stages with the support that they need to continue to be successful. Um, same with the companies. So just in our own backyard, you know, how do you continue to engage with companies that are so generous with their time and their resources in partnering with the program, um, but also may have changing needs. So I think the, the challenges are constant and, um, and they, they also change depending on kind of the data you know the day to day and where you are and in what you're working on. But finally, um, I think the biggest question for me on a regular basis is how do you make a great program even better? You know, how do you look into the future? How do you scale? How do you bring in new participants, um, new partners? And, and how do you change the program design to ensure that every year, no matter how great the results are and how strong the impact is, you're continuing to evolve and iterate so the program continues to grow and continues to meet the objectives that we're looking for. So this is a podcast about women working at the intersection of foreign policy and tech, and we are really curious to know your opinion on how tech and the digital space in general are affecting foreign policy and global politics. I was wondering if there's any change you've seen that tech has already achieved and also any change in a positive way or maybe in a more negative way. Uh, Great question. 
So at IIE, our, our actually our tagline is opening minds to the world. And uh, it's really that notion of, you know, the more you are exposed to, the more peace and prosperity we have um, globally. Now, tech is huge in influencing um, that, in my opinion. I feel like the connect the world and just globalization as a whole has allowed for um, the world to be a lot more connected, for people to feel like they know one another more. And technology, I think, has really been at the forefront of that. Um, we find today conversations are more fluid. People are more available. Um, conversations are nonstop. We see that on Twitter, for example, where um, even on an election, like right now I brought up the election cycle. I mean, Twitter is a, a huge player in terms of understanding what the um, what our candidates are thinking on a regular basis. We It also gives us access. So I can actually tweet to um, people like Samantha Power, for example, and, um, you know, maybe I'll get a, a response, maybe I won't, but I would never have that opportunity before. I think the other thing is really um, on a more collective front, it allows people um, to really have a voice on a global platform. So um, we are finding voices, especially from marginalized communities, um, people who have not been able to um, be very present in certain movements now have, have a space where they can participate in a global dialogue. Um, and, and people who are in a position to affect policy and inform um, decisions at higher levels can hear it now. Um, we are able to see things that trend. Um, we're able to respond to those as um, you know, people in, in, in foreign policy and in, you know, in a global administration. So I think that it's really, it's really changed the nature of it um, under white, uh, President Obama's White House. It's the first time we've even seen um, the digital space being a part of the White House and being something that's monitored and then also, um, I think, uh, facilitated, if you will, from a, from a U.S. administration, um, because it's it's such an opportunity for us to listen and then to respond. Moving forward, as tech grows and as tech becomes more integrated into foreign policy and how we conduct international relations, do you ever see bureaucracy getting in the way of progress? And especially for any listeners out there that may be frustrated with this in their own jobs, do you have any recommendations on how to combat that kind of the the collision of these two things, technology and government? I mean, we know that with, you know, all due respect, government is slow. Change takes time, um, which means progress is slow. And uh, um, it is quite frustrating for anyone who's working, whether it's with government or just the bureaucratic nature of your own job. Uh, um, I think we especially, um, you know, those of you who are millennials who are listening are like ready to have those decisions made now, right? It's that instant gratification and immediate satisfaction that we're used to. Um, and so when you can't have that at your fingertips, it's incredibly frustrating. And bureaucracy is oftentimes the reason for it. So I think that what we've learned um, is that sometimes a little time um, does work. 
to our favor. The patient um, is allows for when, when we are affecting the change and rolling something new out, um, despite it taking longer than we would want, uh, it is actually sometimes just more thought out. Um, it, we still look at it as an iterative process that goes slower, uh, but we're patient in the process and oftentimes look back and think, oh, okay, cool. It's actually cool that we had that time. Um, I would say for those of you who are working uh, with the government, it's important to build trust. So there are things that you can't control and there are things um, that, you know, it maybe it's just they're being held tight uh, by your client or customer or sponsor, whatever you might call the, the group. So I would say that if you can, try and build trust to let them, to allow them to let go. Um, I'll give you an example with tech women. So um, when we look to expand globally into different countries, we want that to happen tomorrow. You know, we want, when we're um, launching, for example, um, a new uh even just going into new different parts of the country, that will take certain time, amount of time, and we want to be able to launch it, you know, right away. It's exciting to go into a new region. Um, we can't do that. That just takes time. There are approval layers, um, and that's kind of how it works, and we've learned to be patient with that. On the other hand, sometimes, you know, it could be something as simple as, um producing a video or a documentary that showcases the great work you're doing. And those approvals, there's a little bit more room for that. So if you're able to build trust, and that takes time as, as well. So if, if it's a kind of a new relationship, it's going to take a little time. But it, with that time, um, I found that, you know, the people that you're kind of waiting on those approvals from will um, – will let go a bit more and will make your life a little easier. <laughs> what do you think the key untapped potential of tech in diplomacy is that you wish people were working on at the moment? I think there are two things that... Um, I actually think people are working on them, um, so I won't say that you know it's not that people are working on, but two things that I'd love to highlight. Um, one is just this notion of the internet as being a basic right. So, you know, we take that for sure for granted in the U.S. because we have so much access to the internet. Um, but there's so much of the world that can't be on Wi-Fi or even connected in any way. And that is limiting access, um, education, and it's those individuals who are marginalized, like women, for example, um, are not able to participate. They're not able to um, have access to the different resources that others have access to that would bring them to the same level or the same playing field. And then they also don't have an opportunity to have a forum where they can share their thoughts freely and be a part of a community to like learn from one another, for example. So that's something I feel like, you know, we see Facebook um, with internet.org and Google with the, the hot air balloons. There's things that are being worked on. Um, I wish they would be able to be, you know, at a much higher rate so everybody would have access today. Um, other thing which I just I think is interesting, you see a lot of things, uh, a lot of conversations related to virtual reality these days. I think um VR is getting a lot of funding um, and a lot of attention from um, VCs and angels. And I think that, um, 
you know, how cool would it be if we could experience travel and experience other cultures, um, experience the exchange without traveling? Um, if we could just kind of take a two-hour jaunt to Paris in the afternoon without leaving our desk or leaving our couch, for example. So that kind of um, that kind of technology would really create an opportunity for so many individuals who don't have the ability, the means, the resources, the time to have the exchange, um, actually participate in that uh, activity and then that dialogue. And ultimately, um, you know, when we think about diplomacy, we're thinking about um, that exchange leading to peace, right, and leading to understanding, mutual understanding. So. Uh, uh, I think it'd be really cool if there was a way to kind of uh, experience a different country or culture without uh, without actually having to get on the airplane. We've covered your career now and your opinion of tech and foreign policy. So let's talk about you. What made you go into international relations? Where did you grow up? What made you want to do this work? So I grew up in Chicago, um, actually a suburb of Chicago called Naperville, Illinois. Um, and when I was growing up, it was uh, just very kind of like, um, what do you call it, like white picket fence, you know, perfect school district, um, very homogenous. I stood out. I, I was I was that girl with the big hair and the funny name. Um, and so that was that was always interesting growing up in that community. Um, when I was 19, I had the opportunity to study abroad in Morocco. And it was actually the first time um, I moved from Chicago to D.C. where I did my undergrad at GW. And then that summer I was in Morocco and it was the first time I saw um, real poverty and it's it's interesting because living in Chicago, you would think I would have more exposure to that growing up, but it was actually, um, I didn't have that. I didn't see what was going on in my own backyard um, uh, in the, you know, in the streets of Chicago. Um, what I saw was this need globally to make a difference to help. I know that sounds cliche, but um, I wanted to commit my, kind of my career to allowing those people that I saw to participate. Um, so many were living in like in the desert as Bedouins without, um, without running water or plumbing or um, even real shelter. And that just affected me to the point where I, um, I was already focused in, in poli-sci and international affairs, but this changed it to a real development focus. Wow, yes. How do you go from there to working at the Institute of International Education? So, so I went back, um, finished my undergrad, went to grad school. Um, so I moved back to Chicago and, and did my master's in public policy at the University of Chicago. And um, I thought to myself, let me just kind of see what's out there. And I was applying for jobs, had never been to California before, believe it or not never visited San Francisco until my interview. And so taking this job for me was kind of a leap of faith um, as much about my personal exposure to the, the world and to America <laughs> as it was the position. Um, what kept me at IIE um, 
was the ability to change, to grow. Um, I started there, like I said, on the Fulbright Scholarship, and I've worn probably six other hats um, before coming to Tech Women. And, uh, you know, what, what keeps me here is that I really feel like I'm in a position to make an impact, and then I, I thankfully am able to see it. So, I mean, there are the cool things, like I get to go to Rwanda and, and you know, hike with the gorillas. Like, that happens, and that's awesome. Um, and we get to go places like the Dead Sea and float in, in you know, this incredible body of water. Um, and those experience are, experiences are incredible and they don't take those for granted but what I really love is the fact that I can see the women year after year change um, see them go home see the impact the program has made on them see the the promotions they've made see the the girls they've mentored see the passion that they have and um, it really makes me feel like I'm in a position where I'm I'm honored and so lucky and privileged to be able to have this small, um, just a small piece of helping them. Um, and, you know, you start off thinking, I'm going to change the world. And, you know, when you actually feel like you've got, you've got a little bit of that, like you're doing a little something, it feels real good. Um, and that's kept me at IIE, and it'll, it'll keep me doing the work that I'm doing for, for a, a very long time, I'm sure. I love how in touch you are with international development and the work that is, you know, really making that happen. Because I think many times in undergrad or grad school, we we hear the term and, and we know that we might want to work in it. But I think that your career is a really good example of a star example of what it truly means to work in international development. So what advice would you give to young women who might be interested in a similar career path? There's so much. I was, I was realizing, Kelsey, that I'm like no longer in my 20s, right? So I actually have all this advice to give. <laughs> and, I'm, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to share. Um, I would, first of all, I would say don't worry. You know, there's so much uncertainty in all of our lives. Uh, but I've seen it with all of my friends, all of my peers, all of my colleagues. It all gets worked out. Um, so if you're worried, for example, about not having enough leadership, don't worry. You're going to get there. If the issue is that you're just not getting paid enough right now, um, especially to make ends meet, especially for those of you who are working in nonprofits, don't worry. You're going to get there. It'll take a little time, but you'll figure it out. Um, if you're worried that you don't know the path, like how do you get to the next step or, um, you know, how do you make that leap? Don't worry. You will create it for yourself. You will find a way. Um, and, and I think that's going to be the way to do that is three things, I would say. First of all, don't doubt yourself. And especially as women, we do this all the time. So just don't doubt, your, doubt yourself. You have to be your own champion and your own cheerleader. And if you are somebody who struggles with that, make sure you, you circle yourself with individuals who you can go to um, to kind of give you that pat on the back and the boost when you need it. The second thing is that if you are, um, it, it's kind of along these lines, we hear a lot about mentorship. Um, I, I sometimes I, I until I had real mentors, the concept of mentorship was really hard for me to to grasp because it felt like 
almost like I was asking someone I didn't know to help me with something. So I would split my advice points number two and three up here to say, if you don't know somebody, don't be afraid to ask for five to 10 minutes of their time. A lot of times people are really excited to meet with young women to share their story or, you know, just kind of give back in any way they can because people get it for them and they want to be, have the opportunity to do the same thing. So that's one thing. Don't be afraid to ask for that time. The other thing about the mentors is that, you know, honestly, they kind of happen without you knowing it. So I would think of it more as create a little circle um, of people that you trust that will give you feedback and it will give you strong advice along the way and check in with them from time to time. These are basically people who've got your back. Um, and, you know, they might work with you. Some might, some might not. Some might be um, people you've gone to school with. Some might be family members. Some might be friends of friends. But I would I strongly urge you to create that inner circle where you ask for the feedback and you trust what you're hearing. And those people will eventually become your mentors and will help you along the way. One thing that I'm hearing and that I, I also really like in in your advice is with this mentorship piece, I like what you said about it will happen naturally. And so of course be driven and be, be focused, you know, when you are able to find it, but also maybe don't force it too. Would you agree with that? Completely. I think that's the challenge with finding a mentor is we think it's the scripted action that we have to take part in. And it's really not. Mm -hmm. um, finding a mentor is like putting yourself out there and meeting people and then cultivating relationships that eventually evolve into mentorship in the truest sense. Arzu, how can we stay in touch with your work, especially if we want to learn more about IIE and the Tech Women program? I'd love for you all to stay in touch, um, and please do. So our, our website is simply techwomen.org. We actually have a blog there as well that we update frequently with um, not just events about the program, but uh, about what our, uh, our participants are doing now that they're home um, and what our mentors are doing to help support them. So that's a great place to um, check out if you're interested in the program. And if you're interested in being a mentor, for those of you who are in the Bay Area, um, there's a whole section on the different opportunities there as well. Um, for more day-to-day -day type of um, updates, uh, you follow us on Twitter. Tech Women is our handle. And um, follow me on Twitter as well, Arzu Riahi, all one word. Um, and that's like probably the best way to stay in touch. I'm very active on Twitter. And if anybody wants to get in touch with me personally, please just DM me and let me know that you listen to this podcast. Is there any closing words of wisdom you would like to share with our listeners? Honestly, this is not an easy career path. I think um, there's not a lot of glory in it. There's not a lot of money. Um, if you... Are, if you're living in areas where there are not a lot of individuals in the field, it's almost like you're the outsider because you're not in finance or you're not in tech, for example. Um, so it's it's it can be very challenging to um, to feel like you're being successful. 
but I would just say stick with it. I will tell you right now, um, when people ask me, like, how do you know you like love your job and what you're doing? I have to say, like, I just like you just know, right? Because people who don't love their job are complaining about it all the time and they don't want to get up in the morning and they don't want to go to work. But um I don't have that. And I feel strongly that people who are passionate about the work that they do will, um, with time and with patience, will get to a place where, um, you know, the money will get figured out, um, where you fit in will get figured out. Um, All of a sudden, it all makes sense and you'll be really happy you stuck with it along the way.